summarized in Lord's Day 1, but first I'd like to read with you from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 starts the, really the second major section of Isaiah, the, well, the third, I guess, really the, the first uh, big section of Isaiah, it continues through, depending on uh, who you're talking to, through uh, chapter 35, uh, that really focuses on the sins of Israel. It, it's meant to lead them to repentance, but also to recognize that there's going to be a cost to their persistent rebellion, their persistent sin. And then chapters 36 through 39, there's a historical interlude there. It really demonstrates what's about to happen. That God is sovereign, that God is able to stop the enemy from overwhelming God's people, but... Because of their sin, he's going to give them into the hand of their enemies for a time. But then starting in chapter 40, there's a distinctly different tone. So different, in fact, that that some liberal scholars claim it had to have been written by somebody else. But that's not the case at all. It's simply that God led Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, to emphasize not the sins of the people, not the punishment that they are due, but the comfort that comes from him through the servant, through the Savior whom he would send. And so in chapter 40, the Lord says through Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare, a way, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken the Lord? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted." But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. It is in the light of this sovereign God and the mercy that He promises that our catechism asks us, What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that we confess before the world and deep in our hearts is that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact... All things, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin anew looking at the biblical truths that are summarized for us in our Heidelberg Catechism, it is not unreasonable for us to ask, What does it all matter? 
I mean, there is so much happening in our world today that demands our attention and that makes us throw up our hands in frustration. Inflation that is bringing our economy to its knees. Division that threatens to tear our nation apart. A fight for the very lives of the unborn. The undermining of our rights and freedoms. And those big concerns don't even touch the things that affect us most in our day-to-day living. There is no shortage of worries, fears, struggles that vie for our attention. Strife within our families that leaves us feeling like a bomb could explode any moment. Persistent pain that impedes your work and makes sleep impossible. Struggles with your spouse that make it hard to go home. Work that you hate, driven by a growing stack of bills. In the face of those struggles and hardships that can feel overwhelming, that can feel like they're suffocating you, what does this doctrine really matter? What difference does it make? Does it truly provide any help? Or are we just preserving a tradition? Does it really have relevance to the hard things of life? My friends, I'm here to tell you. What we confess in our catechism which is to say what we learn in the whole of God's Word, is the most relevant truth that we could hope to find. Here we encounter a balm for all the hurts that afflict us, a hope that enables us to get up in the morning, a comfort that allows us to lie down each night in peace. And we find it all beautifully summarized in its highest and most essential points in this first section that we call Lord's Day 1. Here we see how Christ provides His people a comfort that is absolutely life-altering. And so that's what I want to talk to you about for just a few moments this evening. Christ provides His people with a life-altering comfort. And it's a comfort that begins, or perhaps more accurately, a comfort that has at its core... The fact that Christ saves our very souls from Satan's tyranny. And so that's our first point. You see, at the end of the day, all this stuff that surrounds us, all this stuff that seems to consume us, it's not going to last. The possessions that we work so hard to save up for and to buy, one day soon they're either going to rot or burn. The work that consumes so many hours and days, one day soon we're going to retire and it's going to fade into utter unimportance. The arguments, the fights, the worries, the fears, all of that has a shelf life. Even the foundational things, even the freedoms and the rights that that consume us sometimes, it's all going to come very soon to an end. Christ will return and it's all going to pass away. But we, we will persist. Because we were made, not our possessions, not our jobs, not our homes, not our ideological fights. But we were made for eternity. When all of this stuff passes away, we will persist. 
Everything that surrounds us, everything that consumes us, it will be consumed. But we will continue. The question is, what will come of us in eternity? The default for mankind is an eternity in exile. That's the sentence Israel was facing according to the first 35 chapters of Isaiah's book. As I said before, most of those chapters seek to ensure that God's people understand the cost, the consequence of their sin. Time and time and time again, the prophet lays out the ugliness of the sin and the rebellion to which Israel had given itself. They had been given such an abundance of gifts, such an amazing array of knowledge, and yet they were willing to throw it all away and to serve gods that were not for the thrill of the moment or for the, for the ability to fit in with the nations around them. And he doesn't stop with Israel. He talks about the curse that is coming upon the nations around them because that rebellion against God, it's common among men. Even though Israel had been given a unique understanding of who God is and what he had done, the creation itself testifies to all the nations. And so they all had no excuse. They all should have been knocking on Israel's door, begging for an understanding of how to worship this God. And Isaiah makes it clear they all would suffer for their refusal to worship and serve the Lord. But then comes Isaiah 40. Then comes Isaiah 40. Comfort, my people, says the Lord. Comfort that rests not in what Israel would do, not in what man would attain, but comfort that comes from the Lord. And right at the very start of the comfort that Isaiah proclaims, right at the very introduction comes the most important part. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Iniquity, the consequence of sin, is pardoned. You see, without that, without the removal of our debt for sin, without the removal of the consequence of our rebellion, we can have no peace, we can have no comfort, we can have no hope, we can have no life. Because of our sin, eternity for most men presents an ugly prospect. Every man and woman owes a debt to God's justice, and it's a debt that we cannot ever pay because we keep adding to it. God deserved everything from us. We gave Him of ourselves nothing. Even the very best of our deeds are stained with sin and unworthy before God. And so we deserve an eternity of paying the price for that rebellion. And not only do we start out with a debt against God, we start out enslaved to Satan. Because of the corruption we've inherited from Adam, every one of us desires nothing but sin and rebellion. And we can't escape it. That combination of debt to God and slavery to Satan leaves men in a hopeless spot. The natural man has no power to escape. The natural man has no prospect for relief. The natural man has no hope for eternity. But praise God, He did not leave us to ourselves. He sent His Son. And His Son came with the the purpose of paying the debt and removing the slavery. He came to free us from God's just wrath. Romans 5 speaks at length about God's work or about Jesus' work to save us from divine wrath. There in Romans 5 verse 6 we read, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, right? 
all the popular songs say, you know, people at heart are really good. Those are lies. People at heart are really bad. People at heart do what is rebellious and wicked and deserving of God's wrath. But while we deserved God's wrath, Christ died for the ungodly. And when he did that, he was taking the cost of our sin. He was paying the debt that we owed. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Through Jesus' death, all who trust in him are justified. That means God looks on them, on us, and he sees paid in full, at peace with God. That's our entrance ticket, right? Because of what Jesus did, our debt is paid. And therefore the wrath of God rests upon us no more. That's what the cross was. The wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus because of the sins that we committed. And as a result, Romans 5 verse 10 says that we have been reconciled to God. No longer are we His enemies, but now we are at peace. At peace with God. And not only that, but he has freed us from our slavery to Satan and to sin. Outside of Christ, we would always serve false gods. Isaiah mocks some of those false gods, rightly so. Men make an image and cover it over with gold and fashion chains of silver for it. And they serve it as though though it could help them at all. They They take wood that won't rot. And they fashion it into an image and they bring offerings to it. That's silly. That's foolish. How can that thing that was made by the hands of men offer you any kind of help whatsoever? Well, we don't see too many of those kind of gods in our culture, but we see plenty of false gods. We see the false gods of government or of liberty. We see the false gods of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, sure. But also the false god of money and of power and of influence and of experience and of thrills and of family and of human strength. The number of false gods that men create for themselves is absolutely limitless. But what holds them all in common is that men seek their hope and their identity and their help in them rather than in the true God. Christ alone can free us from that slavery. He it is whom Isaiah describes in verse 23 of Isaiah 40 as the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He is able to deliver us from any man, from any power, from any false god. It is in Him that we find a new identity, a new strength, a new source of life. He renews us in strength to stand firm. He empowers us to live finally for God. He causes us to see truly what we were made to be. Only Christ can do that. Only He can take us out of God's wrath and bring us into peace with God. Only He can take us out of eternal slavery and give us true spiritual peace. Only He can remove the fear and suffering and give us comfort and peace. Christ and no other. That's the heart of our comfort. But it's not the end of our comfort. Because God also cares not just about our eternal end, but also about our here and now struggles. And so the second aspect of our comfort that our catechism shows us is how Christ supervises our lives for God's purposes. 
the troubles of this world weigh heavy on us because they are so unrelenting and unpredictable. They're unpredictable. We can't, we can't see what the future holds. We plan. We save. We lay out the course that we expect our lives will follow. But ask any of the older saints among us. Barely do we create that road map and it's utterly useless. Right? God sends us in places, turns us in directions we never could have imagined. You plan, you get your insurance, you cre- create your savings, and it, it proves to all be wrong-headed. It proves to all be ineffective. And it's relentless. You struggle through the difficulties of today and go to bed only to wake up to brand new struggles and hardships tomorrow. It all conspires to leave us feeling defeated. We see our weakness as life struggles grind us down. We perceive our foolishness as solution after solution proves to be ineffective. We throw up our hands. We're helpless to make it all better. But God, to whom Christ has restored us, is not helpless. How vividly Isaiah 40 shows us that. Verse 12 shows us that he has power that dwarfs the very creation. I mean, he has held the waters in his hand. He knows what the mountains weigh because he created them. He's able to lift them. Verses 13 and 14 speak of the wisdom of God. He made everything without consulting anyone because there was no one to consult. He created all the ones that we might consult. Verses 15 through 17 speak of His sovereignty over the nations of men. He looks on the brilliant plans and plots of men. It looks to Him like the grand plans of toddlers. Utterly foolish. Verses 22 and 23 speak of His superiority over men. The inhabitants of earth are like grasshoppers before Him. The most impressive among men have absolutely no influence over him. Verse 28, he never tires. He never wearies. He never comes to an end of his power. This is the one who cares for us. This is the one who superintends our life. He commanded comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And Isaiah assures us in verse 8, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Despite the immensity of his power and the endlessness of his wisdom. He tenderly reaches down and embraces us. Cares for the smallest needs of the most uninfluential of his people. That's our God. That's the one who has called us his own. And today we confess this God turns every circumstance for our good. Now that doesn't mean that He makes it all easy. We know that's not the case. In fact, some of what we face is indescribably hard. We can't see what the way out of it might possibly be. And yet He turns it to our good using the events of this life to teach us to trust wholeheartedly in Him. To teach us not to rest in ourselves or other men. And to build up our faith in Him so that we will be suited for eternity. There is nothing that we encounter. Hear this, children, young people. There is nothing that we encounter in this life that is outside of His perfect control and plan. The great things of life He maneuvers to bless us. From the course of the nation where we live to the warfare that erupts to the weather itself. But also the small 
the seemingly inconsequential things, these also he attends. When your car breaks down, it's not outside of God's sovereign control. When you face challenges at school or at home, God incorporated all that into his plan. The germs that you encounter that you can't even see with your eyes and how your body handles those germs. God has ordained that. God is superintending that and he's using it all perfectly for your good to shepherd you, to guide you, to mold you in the way that he would have you go. What an amazing comfort that is. You can't even see all of the important factors in your life. But not only does he see them all and perceive their importance in the whole scope of your life, but he is moving and superintending and mapping out every single one of them for your good. And his sovereignty doesn't stop with what surrounds us. Christ is sovereign also over what happens within us. He provides for our hearts, for our souls. And so our third point here, Christ strengthens our hearts for grateful service. When I was a a young man, one of the chores I was often given uh, was brush hogging, mowing, mowing fields that often hadn't been mowed in way too long. And uh, I learned pretty quickly, the hard way, the importance of a shear pin. A shear pin is the weak link, and it's intentionally the weak link. A tractor that's running a mower... It's putting an awful lot of power into turning those blades. And if those blades suddenly stop, the power doesn't stop. It's just suddenly pushing on every single component. And if that blade can't turn because of a stump that it hit or a rock that it hit, something is going to break, possibly catastrophically. And so they incorporate a shear pin, which is a, a small bolt or pin that is made to break so that nothing else does. Well, in our spiritual life, we're the shear pin. We're the weak link. When it comes to the temptations that we face, when it comes to the need to stand firm before God, we will always fail. God won't. His word won't. The circumstances probably won't, but we will. And so he doesn't leave it depending on us. If he did, well, that'd be like a farmer who broke a shear pin shoving a stick in the hole. It's not going to work. Neither would it work if it was dependent on us. We're going to see that as we go through the catechism. As soon as we start resting in us, as soon as we start depending in us, it all falls apart. God doesn't leave us resting in us. From start to finish, our salvation, our sanctification, it all depends on Him. Keep your finger in Isaiah 40. Turn to Titus 3 a minute. Titus 3 talks powerfully about how, how God is the, the source of the strength. What, what is it that we contribute to our spiritual well-being? Well, Paul tells us, Titus 3, verse 3. He says, We ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. <laughs> That's us. That's what we contribute. That's what comes naturally from within us. I don't think there's a parent here who hasn't grieved that first time their child looked them in the eye and lied. I've failed, they think. You haven't failed. You haven't had a chance to fail yet. That's what came natural. 
That was part of the original operating system inherited from Adam. As long as we're relying on us, that's what we get. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. Hated and hating. Most glorious words in the Bible. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what that baptism we saw this morning revealed. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God looks on us in whom nothing good dwells. And He regenerates. He gives new life. He looks on us who are defiled upon, in, in layer upon layer upon layer of filthy sin. And He cleanses us. Not by anything we've done. Not by anything to which we contribute. But by the power of Christ applied through the strength of the Holy Spirit, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how we're saved. That's how we're justified. Not by what we are smart enough, wise enough, insightful enough to do, but by what He sovereignly does to us. And He doesn't stop there. Look back a chapter. Verse 11 of chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men. He's the one who saves us. But then... Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. When we're first saved, folks. That foolish, disobedient, led astray, slavery. All of that doesn't just go away. We're justified. We're right in God's sight because of what Jesus did. But we're still mired in all of this ugliness to which we're enslaved. And so he teaches us a new way, a better way. It doesn't happen all at once. But bit by bit, day by day, he teaches us to absolutely hate the sin that comes natural. He teaches us to be disgusted in the things that once got us up out of bed. He teaches us to long to get rid of the stuff for which this world lives. And he starts making it attractive in our eyes to live in a way that reflects the Lord. To live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And to wait eagerly for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He does that. If it was up to us, we're the weak link. We would snap in an instant. We would go right back to that hating and being hated. We would go right back to that ugliness and that defilement. But... It doesn't depend on us. He's the strength. He's the source. He's the solid ground. And He leads us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives by His power, by His strength, unto His glory. The question is, how do we get this? Christ is the one who saves our souls from Satan's tyranny. Christ is the one who supervises our lives by God's purposes. He's the one who strengthens our hearts for grateful service. But how do we get that? Because that's what we need. And that's the last thing we see from our catechism here. But oh, it's so important. Christ provides comfort seeking our commitment through unrestrained faith. That's the last thing we see here. Understand, this comprehensive comfort of Christ, it's not automatic. Children, it's not yours 
just because you were born into the right family or just because you sit in the pew of this church or even because you got some water put on your head when you were a child. The water wasn't important. The promises were. The promises that the water displays. But even those promises, the promises came to you, but the thing promised is not automatic. It comes... It comes by the way of faith. Look back at Isaiah 40. The end of that chapter. He's proclaimed comfort. He's declared the sovereignty of God and the goodness that He brings. He says in verses 29 and 30, He's the one who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Youths faint and are weary and young men fall exhausted. But He's able to renew their strength. But for whom? He doesn't do it for everybody. It's not automatic and it's not universal. No, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That's faith. Waiting on the Lord. Trusting not in me, but in Christ. Relying not on my strength, my wisdom. No, all in Him. That's faith. Second question and answer of our catechism describes what that faith looks like. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. You need to know the misery of your sin. That no matter how hard you try, how hard you scramble, no matter how committed you think you are, you can't fix it. You can't rescue yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. But you need to know that Jesus can. Matter of fact, he already did. He paid all that needed to be paid. He did all that needed to be did. He to be done. He sits in heaven right now, exercising his authority over all things for the good of his people. All you need to do is trust him. He promises, no one who comes to me will I ever cast out. No one ever. But we must look to Him. And if we do, if we have that kind of faith, then we will demonstrate it by showing our gratitude. We will demonstrate it by showing our love. We will show our love by our obedience. Not perfectly, not immediately, but bit by bit. That, my friends, is the faith that ties us to Christ. And that faith is the only path to living comfort. In other words, God wants us to sing from the heart what we heard from our call to worship this evening. Like the psalmist in Psalm 62, the Lord wants us to see our need for salvation, for protection, for a fortress. And then He wants to see that 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 salvation, that protection is found in Christ and in Him alone. And He wants us to confess, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And because I rest in Him, I shall not be greatly shaken. And He wants us to believe that so clearly, so concretely, that we're willing to confess before an unbelieving world, knowing that there is no hope elsewhere, that the only way they can find comfort is the way that we've found comfort. He wants us to confess before the world, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. That's faith. And that's the, the only pathway to the comfort that we crave. Christ provides His people an absolutely life 
life-altering comfort. Lord willing, as we go through the catechism, we will see anew how true and how essential that is. But I challenge you this week to study the truth that we see in Lord's Day 1 and to ask yourself, is that my comfort? Is that my hope? Is that my assurance? If it is, praise the Lord. Because you didn't do that on your own. He did it. And if it's not, then you need to reevaluate. Where am I resting? On what ground am I standing? And what will that mean for my eternity? Where is your only comfort in life and in death? The only answer that will stand. That I am not my own but belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have provided the only hope, the only help that we could ever need. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for revealing our hope in him through the gospel. Teach us, everyone, to trust in him and in him alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and show our thanks to God by singing number 386. Number 386, How Vast the Benefits Divine.